Well, if I was to ask you, what are the core doctrines of Christianity? What would you say? What are the core doctrines of Christianity? You don't need to answer that out loud. Just think in your head. What are the core doctrines of Christianity? I hope that you would include the gospel. Gospel means good news. Certainly there are other uh, essentials of the faith besides the, the gospel. But the gospel, uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, is of first importance. So we've got to ask the question then, what is the gospel? What is this good news? Well, that, that verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that says the gospel is of first importance really helps kind of get to the core of Christianity. And, and one of the things that I hope you would say would be that Christ died for our sins. That's the first thing that it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I hope another thing you might say would be that Christ was raised from the grave. Uh, next week we'll be looking at that from Matthew chapter 28. And if you said both those things, you would be correct. But as I've been studying here in Matthew 27 this past week, I've noticed I often tend to skip over the second core doctrine. I haven't really given a whole lot of thought to it, quite frankly, until uh, this week. Uh, but according to 1 Corinthians 15, here's what the Apostle Paul says, in verse, starting in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and, well, there's no and here, it says that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice Paul has three parts there as, he, as he's getting to the core doctrines of Christianity. And he includes the burial of Jesus Christ as the second of the core doctrines of Christianity. Uh, it's interesting that uh, the four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do all uh, address the burial of King Jesus. In fact, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, he has ten verses, Mark has six verses, and Luke has six verses, and John has five verses. They all address the burial of King Jesus. But, frankly, we don't really give a whole lot of thought to Jesus' burial. At least I don't. Maybe you do. I hope you do. And so after the death, we, if you're like me, we, we tend to move on to the good news of the resurrection. I mean, after all, if Jesus died and if Jesus stayed dead, then according to 1 Corinthians, we need to be pitied because we are, we are people without hope, without the resurrection. But notice in 1 Corinthians 15, between the death of Jesus and the resurrection, all the writers of this good news record Jesus' burial. And so with that in mind, we want to look at the, the primary text we're using coming from Matthew. So look in your Bibles here, Matthew 27. We're going to start in verse 57. Verse 57. The Word of the living God says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body 
and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive, After three days I will arise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. I want to ask you a series of questions as we look at this text. My first question is this. Uh, Paul obviously thought the burial of Jesus Christ was important. All the gospel writers obviously thought the burial of Jesus Christ was important, which then means the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, thought the burial of Jesus was important. So we have to ask the question, why? Why is the burial important? Well, there's at least three reasons. Number one, the burial proves that Jesus was really dead. Now, that's an important point to make, let me, so let me explain. Think about this. If Jesus had not been buried after the centurion had certified that Jesus was truly dead, then it would have been very possible for skeptics to argue that Jesus had not really died. In fact, uh, even though the Bible says this, there are many skeptics today who want to argue the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, there are some liberals and unbelievers who have said uh, things like, well, perhaps he only seemed to be dead. Uh, perhaps Jesus swooned, uh, like he fainted and appeared to be dead and then was somehow revived. You know, somehow, you know, he goes into the cold stone tomb there and, and the coldness maybe revived him. And, and then uh, that was able to convince his followers that he had triumphed over death. Think about that, though. A resuscitation such as that would have been absolutely impossible in view of the truth we see in Scripture. Uh, the, the view of this burial that we have and, and the way that the burial was actually accomplished just shuts those lies down. Think, think with me for a moment, okay? All right, what do you know about uh, Jesus and, and what happened to him with his death and burial and resurrection? I mean, we have... The Bible says there was a professional executor who took, uh, uh, I mean, they had Jesus nailed on the cross. I mean, this, this guy had confirmed to Pilate that Jesus was dead. Remember, Pilate uh, said, would you, I mean, is this guy dead already? And so the centurion confirmed that he was. And, and by the way, the Bible says to make sure that all three of them, not only Jesus, but all three of them were dead, uh, they, had, they had the legs broken of the thieves. And for Jesus, the soldier took a spear and, and, and went through his side into his heart. 
The Bible also says that, that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. By the way, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, that, that Jewish high council. And so here's this guy. He's, he's putting everything on the line. His whole reputation, his job, his, you know, his wealth, his, everything, his honor is on the line by doing that. Uh, Jesus' body was carefully prepared for burial by multiple people. Uh, we'll, we'll look a little bit more at that later. Also, Jesus' body was placed in a new tomb. And, and as we just read, it says that that tomb was sealed with a large stone. Uh, we also see there were soldiers there guarding. Uh, the, and, the, and we'll talk about the, the seal, the Roman seal, in a moment. So all of that combined just gives us a really strong evidence for who Jesus is and what was accomplished here. Uh, the burial of Jesus assures us that he really was dead. And what it also shows is if he was dead, that means there's also a true resurrection. And Jesus conquered death and sin in the process. And God the Father accepted his son's sacrifice on our behalf. So it shows that he really was dead. Number two, the burial fulfilled Scripture. It actually fulfills Scripture. And, and you may not catch this, uh, but hopefully you've read Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, which is on the screen here. It says that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now, it's easy for us to just read Scripture and kind of gloss over and say, oh, that's, that's you know, <laughs> you may not even notice the word rich. But that is a key word there because uh, Matthew probably has this prophecy in mind. Uh, he, after all, he says that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He emphasizes the rich word there. That certainly is a critical word. And so in the process, uh, Jesus... He's fulfilling Bible prophecy. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But number three, this one isn't so obvious, and so I must say I have to give credit to commentator and pastor James Boyce for helping me come to grips with this. But the third point is this, that the burial has theological significance. It has theological significance. Now, that it's not so obvious if you're looking at particularly Matthew's text here, you you could easily kind of skim over this. But when you understand what the Old Testament says about the grave and death and then, and then compare that with what the New Testament has to say, hopefully there's some, some great theological truths that will jump off the page. So what, uh, <clears throat> what did the Old Testament have to say about the grave? Well, uh, it, it, didn't, didn't, <laughs> it didn't come at it with a good light. Let's put it that way. I'll give you a few examples. Let's start in Genesis. Genesis 37 says this, In mourning will I go down to the grave. 2 Samuel 22 says, The cords of the grave coiled around me. Just think of one of those constrictor snakes, uh, you know, a python or something like that. It's kind of like that idea. And often the word grave in our Bibles is the, the Hebrew word sheol. And if you know anything about that Hebrew word sheol, it's often connected to uh, the word hell. It has overtones of hell. For example, in Psalm 116, it says, the anguish of the grave. This wasn't something a lot of people looked forward to. It was anguish for them. Uh, Job uh, called Sheol the land of gloom and deep shadow. 
So that, that's kind of like what the Old Testament thinks of Sheol or the grave. And so to say that Jesus not only died, but the, the Bible says that he was buried in a grave means that Jesus descended as low as he could go, and, it, and he had a purpose for that, which was to raise us up. And here's the way Herman Ritterboss said it in his book. He said, quote, Jesus endured not only pain and suffering and the curse of death, but even the terror of the grave so that he could save his people from this forever. Haven't you ever talked to someone, gone to a funeral or whatever? I mean, uh, if, if you go to the funeral of an unbeliever, it's, I don't know about you, but I find it very depressing. It's hard going to the funeral of someone who's never put their faith in Jesus Christ. There's no hope. No hope. The grave, the, the tomb, death is something to be feared, not something to be looked forward to, like for an unbeliever. So with that in mind, it's interesting when you come to the New Testament, particularly a, a book like uh, that Paul wrote in, in Romans, Paul speaks of Christians being buried with Jesus in his death. So when you look at a great theological book like Romans, uh, uh, you need to understand the, the, the background of what we see in the Old Testament. And so it said that they are raised, according to Romans 6, with Jesus in his resurrection. And by the way, in, in, in Romans, particularly Romans chapter 6, Paul's discussing this in the midst of, of addressing sanctification. He's talking about how we are, we, uh, G, because of Jesus, he's conquered the power of sin. He's dealt with the penalty of sin. That You can read that in chapter 3, 4, and 5. But then in Romans chapter 6, he's looking at this power of sin that every one of us has. And so in that context, he's discussing this Christian life, explaining why believers cannot continue in sin. Why not? Well, look what uh, look what the uh, the Bible says here in Romans six verse four. It says we were buried. Under, underline the word buried there for you. I want to emphasize that because we're looking at Jesus' burial. So we were buried with him. That's Jesus by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we, we see death, we see life. Uh, those are two key words in Romans chapter 6. But let's not miss the burial here as well. When Jesus was buried, something was buried with him. And it has something to do with you. And so when theologians work out the, the parallels here, a lot of times it's, it's quite easy for us to understand Jesus, his death and his resurrection part but we, we struggle, and even theologians struggle, well, what's the significance of this burial part? Well, uh, you know, how were we buried with Christ? Because Paul says we were buried with him by, by baptism into death. You know, what, what does that truth there actually add to our lives? Well, here's what one commentator said. It might be helpful. Quote, The reason burial is an important step even beyond death is that burial puts the deceased person out of this world permanently. A corpse is dead to life, but in a sense it is still in life, as long as it is around. When it is buried, when it is, when, when it is placed in the ground and covered with earth, it is removed from the sphere of this life permanently. End quote. 
That's why a lot of people, they, they talk of wanting to have closure in their life when some, someone they, they know or love has, uh, uh, they, they, they've died, but they can't recover the body for whatever reason. Uh, people often feel like there's no closure, and they, they want closure. That's one of the things that burying someone in the earth does. It, it does bring closure. It, it removes that body from the sphere of this life permanently. And so Paul has that in mind, theologically speaking, when he's writing Romans here. and He wanted to emphasize the finality here of being removed from this rule, this dominion of sin and death. Sin has power. Even though Jesus has conquered it, it has like residual power working. And so to go back to sin then, once you've been joined to Jesus Christ, Paul's saying here is kind of like going back and digging up a body, a dead body out of the ground. You know, that's kind of disgusting. We don't do that. At least we shouldn't do that. And so that that's the picture here. Just like you shouldn't go and do that to a physical body, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, let's not do this spiritually. You were, after all, buried with Christ into his death. Well, it's unlikely that the gospel writers like Matthew had all of that in mind when they're writing about Christ's burial. But, of course, they're guided by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit here, is, is kind of really laying down a good foundation. Matthew and the others are laying down this foundation for Paul, and he would take that and kind of take that ball and run with it to, to, to give us a greater full theological significance. So there is, there is great theological significance as we look at this. My second question for you is this. What is the main idea of the text then? Since the burial is significant, and we do need to, to read this and study it, what is, what is this all about? Well, in Matthew's account, he gives us ten verses with a lot of details of Jesus' burial. And they're all pointing to Jesus, showing us something about Jesus. We, we get to see his sonship, his messiahship we get to see his kingship and as you look at this you just see god's providence on every verse at least i hope you do god's just everywhere there Uh, there is no human explanation for these events it's really humanly unexplainable except unless you believe that god is providentially working through through even these evil men to accomplish his purposes and so he's he's shown to be the messiah of course that's matthew's main theme showing that Jesus is the king. Uh, But we also see that he's the son of God. He is the sovereign ruler of God's kingdom. And so my main idea is just kind of, I've just worded it this way, that Jesus is God. All right, that's about as simple as I can put it. Jesus is God. So as you look at this, don't lose sight of that. There's a lot of details we'll look at. And in fact, Matthew's given us several witnesses. Just like last week, there were witnesses to the deity of Jesus Christ. We have more witnesses pointing to Jesus' deity. And the first one is mentioned in verses 57 through 60. And his name is Joseph of Arimathea. So Joseph of Arimathea is the first witness to Jesus' deity. And so Joseph's actions fulfill Bible prophecy. This is no just accident going on here. Isaiah 53 is the Old Testament's most detailed prediction of the Messiah's suffering and death. And included in that, we already read earlier, in Isaiah 53, verse 9, there's this amazing statement, a, a prediction that says this. And by the way, written hundreds, uh, perhaps about 700 years before Jesus was even on the earth. And here's what it says. 
his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. That is significant. That really, just one little verse, an obscure prophecy, would have been really impossible to for us to fully comprehend until Messiah actually comes along, he's buried, and uh, this event actually takes place. Although Christ's enemies, you have to understand, they fully intended to have Jesus buried just as a common criminal. That was typically what Romans did with, with anybody who was crucified. Uh, they didn't really care about people's bodies. They just wanted them dead. And then they just wanted them removed. And so God's plan, though, was that Jesus was to be buried in the tomb of a wealthy man. And so this text is clearly showing us, then, who really is in control of what's going on here? Is it man? Is it the Jews? Is it the Romans? No, none of them. In fact, we see that God is the one who is sovereignly reigning supreme over all of his creation. And so it was common, uh, as soon as a victim was declared dead, which of course the centurion did, that the body would be taken down from the cross, uh, a lot of times be thrown in a common grave for criminals. But the Romans, uh, as I said, they just had no respect for a person's corpse. Uh, they didn't care if, if uh, the birds got to the corpse. They didn't care if animals got to it. Sometimes uh, bodies were even thrown into the burning rubbish dump that was on uh, uh, the south side of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom, uh, from which we get uh, the, the Greek words Gehenna, and we get a, our English word hell. It was a burning rubbish dump on the south side of Jerusalem just constantly smoldering away. And so Jesus used that valley of Hinnom, the burning rubbish dump, to portray, just, just kind of give us an idea of what hell was like. And often bodies would just be thrown in there. It was, it was just an easy way to get rid of them. And here in our text, we see at the exact moment of Jesus' death, not any earlier and not... Uh, hours later, but right at the exact moment of Jesus' death, we see God moving in the heart of a godly man named Joseph. And he has great courage to go and talk to the Roman governor. So what do we know about this guy named Joseph of Arimathea? Well, let me just shed a little light by looking at the other gospel writers. For example, uh, the gospel according to Mark says, in chapter 15, it says that he was a prominent member of the council. That means he was part of the Sanhedrin. And it says that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. This is a godly man. Um, he's just stuck in a bad group. <laughs> but obviously God had saved him and brought him to himself. And then Luke chapter 23 says that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their plan and action uh, what plan in action is that? Well, their plan was to condemn and execute Jesus. He had not consented to that. And the Bible says here in Matthew that this was uh, a rich man named Joseph from Arimathea. I don't know a whole lot about Arimathea other than, uh, well, what Luke chapter 23 says, that it was a city of the Jews, uh, which most likely means that uh, Joseph of Arimathea lived close to Jerusalem and they're in the region of Judea. Well, how did Joseph then come to love Jesus? How did he come to love him? I mean, it said he wasn't consenting to his fellow council members' decision to destroy Jesus. He, um, 
he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Well, how did he get to this point? Well, apparently some at some point during those last three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, Joseph became a disciple of Jesus. Although when you read John chapter 19, it says uh, he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And you might ask, well, why did he fear the Jews? Well, that, uh, why not fear the Jews? If you're part of the Sanhedrin, if you're part of the Jewish high council, you have great reason to fear them. Um, several reasons. For example, if he had actually made his allegiance to Jesus Christ public, it would have cost him his place on the Sanhedrin council. It certainly would have jeopardized his, his economic and social and family welfare as well. He would have lost his job. He would have lost his so-called honor and, and, and place in life. Well, what did Joseph actually do? According to verse 58, the Bible says that he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And when you look at verse 59, it almost, according to Matthew, it almost makes it sound like Joseph, Joseph is the only one going uh, to Pilate and then and going off to take Jesus off the cross. However, we know according to John chapter 19 that Nicodemus who was probably another member of the Sanhedrin, was also there. John 19 says that, that Nicodemus was at least at the tomb. If you look uh, here, it says in verse 39, that bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight, together they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So Joseph of Arimathea is not alone. He has other people who have obviously come to Christ. You remember Nicodemus? An interesting uh, encounter he had with Jesus in John chapter 3. He was an unbeliever in John 3, and Jesus said, You must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus didn't get it. He's thinking physically, Jesus is thinking spiritually. Well, Nicodemus obviously does eventually come to Christ. He is a disciple of Christ. And so together they they uh, they loved Jesus. And... Uh, here, here, Jesus seems to be alone, but here these guys are, it's like they're sticking out their necks for Jesus. Well, after the body was wrapped, uh, the, uh, Joseph would have rolled a large stone, stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. It would have looked something like that, I assume. Uh, from all the pictures I've seen, uh, the, these stones could have been up to, you know, two meters in diameter, uh, big, heavy stones, and so they would have gone on a slope. So pushing it down over the entrance would have been fairly easy, but it would have been incredibly hard to push the stone back uphill. <laughs> uh, so they, and it was it was made that way on purpose. Graves were commonly secured in some sort of a way, often with these large stones over the entrance. Uh, they wanted, after all, they wanted to protect the body from desecration. Uh, it could have been desecrated by by tomb robbers. Uh, they wanted to keep the birds and the animals out. Uh, you, you know what it was like for the pharaohs of Egypt. I mean, all of them except for King Tut had had their tombs robbed. That was quite common back in those days to have tombs robbed and have stuff buried with the deceased person. And so this was one of the ways they did to to protect the deceased body. So Joseph of Arimathea is a witness to Jesus' deity. We have another one mentioned here in verse 61. and And... And we have two women 
again, hi- highlighting the women and, and, uh, and what they thought of Jesus, what Jesus thought of them. Look at verse 61, because it says, uh, we have Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So of all the people the Bible could mention, and all these people who knew Jesus, all we have is, is two now here. After the tomb is sealed up, there's, there's two women. And, and there were many women. Remember, we saw that earlier. Many women had observed the crucifixion. But now we have all we have is Mary Magdalene and this Mary who we saw in the previous text, Matthew. Um, this is the, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, according to Mark 15. Uh, and, and so apparently they had followed Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb. I don't know how else they would know. And so if, they may even helped Joseph and Nicodemus. Uh, they would have needed some help, most likely, to wrap Jesus' body in the spices. Remember, John 19, it said there was a hundred pounds of spices that would have been added there, and then they would have wrapped all that around Jesus' body. And so uh, here, the, after the, the, the stone was rolled over the, the tomb, the two Marys are now sitting, as the Bible says, opposite the grave. I'm assuming they're mourning. Uh, apparently, the two men had left at this point, and these women were now alone here at the tomb. You might ask, why does the Holy Spirit bother to put these kind of details in the text? Well, it, when we look at the resurrection passage in Matthew 28, maybe it'll help you understand why that's there a bit. Because these women were, were here they are, they're, they're, they're now alone at the tomb. And they make a very special contribution to this whole scene. Uh, they are the ones who are going to be the first to return to the tomb. They're, they're the ones who are the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And the Holy Spirit mentions them and gives a wonderful, special contribution to them. So they're the second group of witnesses to Jesus' deity. Joseph of Arimathea was the first, but let's look at the third group. Of all the people the Holy Spirit could use to point to Jesus' deity, how about use it? Just, this is awesome. God uses the religious leaders. Religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders. And we see them mentioned in in verses 62 to 66, because it says that the next day, in verse 62, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So, as far as we know, the disciples had forgotten that Jesus promised to rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus had said that several times. They should have remembered, but they didn't. But we do see that Jesus' enemies, his earthly enemies here, did remember this prediction that Jesus would arise from the dead on the third day. And that's why the religious leaders went to Pilate. He's, he's the one in charge. He's the Roman governor overseeing this region. And it's interesting the details we have in the text. These details are just showing us the hatred that these men had for Jesus. It reminds me of uh, in Genesis chapter 50, uh, you know, the, the hatred that Joseph's brothers had for him. But in the end, in Genesis 50, Joseph was able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's exactly what we see here. God's accomplishing his purposes, even through evil men who had evil purposes 
uh, let me, let's just, I want to point out a few things here. Several of the details showing their hatred for Jesus. Number one, we have, notice in the text in verse 62, it says we have the chief priest and the Pharisees working together. Now, if you know anything about these two groups, you, you would immediately say that's incredible. <laughs> because this is only the second time in the scriptures that we see these two groups together. They did not like each other. They hated each other. Uh, they, ha- they were theological opponents to one another. <laughs> and so th- th- this is why it's the only second time in Scripture that we see these two groups together, working together for this common purpose of making sure that Jesus stays dead and that uh, his, his teaching is not resurrected, if you will. We also see it was highly unusual for the Jewish religious leaders to actually go and meet with a pagan secular ruler, especially on the Sabbath. As far as they were concerned, to go meet with this this guy named Pilate, this Roman governor, on the Sabbath was uh, was defiling their bodies. It was making them unclean and unable to even worship God. Now, if you know anything about Pharisees, there was almost nothing more important to them than their appearance uh, and their defilement, their cleanness. So not only that, though, it appears they, they actually go into Pilate's council chamber here, right into the praetorium, uh, which, of course, would have defiled them as well. And number three, we have Christ's enemies here who who hate Jesus so much. When you look at verse 63, look what they call Jesus. They don't even want to mention Jesus' name. They don't want to mention his title. They don't want to talk about him being king. All they can say in verse 63 is, to Pilate, they said this, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive. (laughs) They call him an an imposter. Other Bible translations call him a deceiver. So they're not even using his name. They hate him so much. But yet... That shows their hatred, but yet we see God is going to providentially uh, oversee and rule through their hatred to accomplish some amazing purposes, which I'll, mo- I'll mention in just a moment. But how, how do we see Pilate actually handling these guys? Remember, he didn't really like these guys. He's just kind of going along with them and trying to keep the peace because Caesar has already rebuked him, and he doesn't want to lose his job which he does a few years later, but he, he doesn't want to lose it at this point. So in verse 65, it actually says that Pilate ordered the Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. Now, there actually is some debate on, uh, well, whose soldiers are these? Okay, Were they the, the, the temple guard, or was it the Roman soldiers? Well, I think it doesn't really matter a whole lot, but when you look at... Uh, when we look at the resurrection passage, it appears that they're Roman soldiers. So I'm going with that. And so let's just think about this for a moment. If, if they are Roman soldiers, a Roman guard was made up of 16 soldiers who would rotate their, their, um, you know, who is actually there guarding. Okay. So they wouldn't stay there the whole three days. In other words, they would have this rotation going on. You have to understand, these were well-disciplined soldiers in the Roman army. And they had to be because if they were negligent, they would die. 
they would be executed if they were negligent while on duty. So there was this, this fear motive, if you will, for them to do what the Roman government wanted them to do. And so that's important to understand, because these men were not going to just let anybody come and take Jesus' body. They were there to do their duty. And over their dead bodies, literally over their dead bodies, is the only way anyone was going to get in there to take Jesus' body. This guard, as we see, put an official Roman seal on the stone. If You'll see in that picture there, that little, uh, I'm assuming it was made out of leather, uh, and then they would have had wax as well, but uh, that was the seal, the Roman seal that they would have put, put on the stone. And why does the Bible mention that? Because Pilate says in verse 64, he, he's, it says, uh, Therefore, order the, the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. So they didn't want the, uh, a new fraud to arise, and that one be even greater than uh, the previous one. And so Pilate says in verse 65 to, to, to them, he says, You have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the guards are there, they're doing their duty. And then there's a seal put on the stone. Don't know exactly what it looked like. Not sure if it looked like that or not, but that's one man's idea of what it may have looked like. So what was this seal and what was its purpose? Well, in the book called Manners and Customs of the Bible, here's what it says. I'm quoting from this book. The context shows that this was an official sealing that was intended to be so arranged that the seal could not be broken without detection. A cord stretched across the stone with a lump of stamped clay fastened it at each end, and it would prevent any entrance without detection. Clay was often impressed with the stamp of seals. End quote. So Pilate would have had a, a, a ring, and that ring represented his authority, and that, that the authority of Rome was stamped in that seal there on Jesus' tomb. And so anybody defiling that tomb, attempting to open and get in there and take Jesus' body, would have been under judgment of Rome. And most likely would have died in the process if, if they were caught. Well, this is an amazing story. If you, if you understand what's going on here, why all these details... So the purpose of the Jewish leaders and the Roman leader Pilate here was to prevent a hoax. They were tr- trying to prevent a hoax. That was their earthly human thinking here. However, what is really going on is God is accomplishing His purposes. God is glorifying Himself. All of this was of God. While particularly the Pilate, the Jewish relig- religious leaders meant this for evil, God meant it for good. All of this was clearly of God. You can see His providential hand ruling through all of this. And so, what we have here now is, we have a situation where now, it's going to be totally impossible for anyone to come and steal Jesus' body. Do you see how God has just set this up for Jesus' resurrection and to glorify Himself in the process? I I love seeing how this is working out. So without actually realizing it, I, I, I seriously doubt they had, they had done that on purpose. 
But unwittingly, these Jewish leaders in the Roman government are joining together in force, and they're trying to help prove, uh, they're trying to stop this hoax. But what, in the, what are they actually doing in the process? They're actually going to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are going to prove that Jesus is God. And so in the process, what we have is a series of testimonies, a series of witnesses here, all pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus' deity, clearly showing us that Jesus is God. God causes us to really believe that and open our eyes to behold wonderful things from His Word. Let's pray.